Scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. It's listed in the bulletin as the entire chapter. I'm going to be reading uh, just up to verse 15. Uh, Before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now to him who loves us, who freed us from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yesterday, when I found out that John was going to be out, and you notice in your bulletin that John was scheduled to preach, I thought about pulling one of my old Epiphany sermons and preaching it. Today is Epiphany. But alas, I could not bring myself to preach an old sermon. Scripture commands us to preach the Word of God, to be prepared in and out of season. So I sat down yesterday and wrote a sermon, which is actually not a bad way to begin a new year, meditating on God's word, allowing it to confront you and conform you to God's will. So this morning, I'm going to share my New Year's Day meditation. 
And the premise of this sermon is simple. The message of Christmas is not only that Jesus has come to redeem as Savior, it is also that Jesus has come to reign as King. We see this in the coming of the Magi, the wise men who traveled from afar seeking he who has been born king of the Jews. But Jesus isn't just coming as king of the Jews. These Gentile foreigners had traveled from distant lands to come and bow before him themselves. And they represent the fulfillment of the prophecy that even foreign dignitaries will come and bow before the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 60, verse 3, "...and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." Psalms 68 and 72 tell us that these kings of other nations will come bearing gifts, rendering tribute, bowing and serving him because he is not simply a king, he is the king, the king of kings. And we see this fulfilled in part in the Magi. They acknowledge who Jesus really is, and they also serve as a signpost of the day when every knee will bow before Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if this is so, if the one who has come to redeem us from our sins has also come to reign over all of his creation, then our response to his coming isn't simply to acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in need of salvation. It is also to honor him as king by submitting our lives to his rule, aligning our lives under his reign. But we must stop and consider what this means in our particular context. We live in a culture which is highly self-seeking and self-serving. We live in a culture in which personal autonomy and independence is prized above all else. And in this sort of culture, having Jesus as a savior is one thing. We might acknowledge and recognize our need to be forgiven of our sins. But truly acknowledging Jesus as king is quite another. One pastor put it, we don't mind him being king by name as long as he is not king by authority. We don't mind Jesus carrying around the title as long as he is not telling us what to do. But Jesus is not presented in Scripture as a leader of a democracy. He is a sovereign ruler. He isn't looking for your vote. He isn't asking for your permission to promote his agenda. He will rule in the way he so chooses in order to fulfill his kingdom goals and to accomplish his sovereign purposes. So as we begin a new year, I want to encourage you to honor Jesus Christ as king over your life each and every day this year by submitting your life to him. 
And we can glean several reasons why we should acknowledge and honor Jesus as king over our lives from Matthew's gospel this morning. I want to highlight four of them for you. And my hope is that you would consider these as we begin this new year. So first, seeking to live outside of God's rule always ends in some form of tyranny. Seeking to live outside of God's rule always ends in some form of tyranny. Matthew's gospel presents Jesus as king, but this is done in sharp contrast to another king. Listen again to how chapter 2 begins. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Matthew was intentional to mention that Herod was king of Judea when Jesus was born. And this wasn't merely to give us a historical bearing. It was to create this contrast. And Matthew keeps telling us that Herod is king, at least until verse 9. At which time the Magi find the true king and Herod is no longer referred to using this title. Well, isn't that interesting? Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us much of Herod. It didn't really need to. Matthew's audience knew about Herod. He was religiously Jewish, although he was a descendant of, he was by descent an Edomite. Politically, he was Roman. Although his reign as king over Judea was sometimes seen in a positive light for what he accomplished, make no mistake, he was a paranoid tyrant who killed three of his own sons among many others in his madness to retain his crown. Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus, supposedly once said only partly in jest, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. And Matthew hints at this. There's a reason why Matthew tells us that all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod in verse 3. It's because Herod's troubles would be Jerusalem's troubles. When the tyrant becomes disturbed, so goes his kingdom. But notice what Matthew is doing here. He's presenting us with competing claims for kingship and this is the reality of our lives we all live with completing claims of authority over us and we might imagine that we live under no authority but ourselves but all of us will bow our knees before something or someone so what or who will it be this is a question for us and it could be that we live under a very real, tyrannical ruler like Herod who demands our submission. More and more we might be feeling like that here in America, but that isn't our real and present threat, at least not yet. Perhaps more commonly in our context, we might live under the rule of the ethics of a religion or philosophy. And there is a striking difference between Christianity and all other religions and philosophies. Tim Keller recently pointed out that Buddha's 
last words on this earth were, strive unceasingly. Jesus' last words before he died on the cross were, it is finished. Or, it could be that we have accepted or created some ideal of what makes the perfect life or society that we then endlessly pursue. To these, C.S. Lewis once wrote, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. I believe that we are seeing this sort of tyranny play out right before our eyes in this secular humanist age that we live in. And this could be imposed on us by outside forces or it could be self-imposed. It's tyranny nonetheless that demands full submission. And the prince of darkness is happy for us to imprison ourselves, chasing after some moral end outside of God. It could also be that we reject all outside authority. We could pride ourselves on being anarchist, a word meaning leaderless, but are we ever really without a leader? In the absence of an outside authority, our default setting is simply to follow after our own desires and devices. In this scenario, we fancy ourselves to be in control, but in reality, we are simply slaves to our own selfish and sinful wants and wishes, and they make cruel masters. Sin always promises freedom but never delivers. The deeper you go, the more enslaved you become, and there is no escape outside of Jesus Christ. There's a quote that's been attributed to many different authors but seems to have an unknown origin. Its truth still stands, though. Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. You might think that you have control over your sin, but you don't and you won't. Outside of Jesus Christ, we have no power over sin. So take Herod. He's driven by his own evil desires. And think of how miserable of an existence he lived, driven constantly by fear and in unquenchable lust for power, constantly paranoid of losing his authority to the point of murdering his own family members to retain control. And his miserable existence meant trouble for everyone around him. He is the picture of the destructive force of our own desires. So ultimately, we will submit our lives to something or someone. And what God wants us to understand is that Jesus is the only master who does not reign in tyranny over us, but in whom we find freedom. Jesus, Scripture tells us, came to set the prisoners free. 
He came to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and to bring us into his marvelous light. So you can live in darkness under the reign of Herod, or you can live in the light under the reign of King Jesus. Take your pick. This gets us to the second reason why you should submit your life to the rule of Jesus. Jesus is a sympathetic and loving ruler. Jesus is a sympathetic and loving ruler. The nativity story presents us with a Savior and Lord who isn't uninterested or uninvolved. He's not removed from his subjects. He doesn't reign from a distance. In Jesus, we don't have one who was born in the lap of luxury in a palace protected from the harshness of life. Rather, Jesus was born into obscurity in a small town in Bethlehem, which is pointed out here as having no claim to importance outside of the birthplace of the Messiah. This is what is meant by verse 6, saying that Bethlehem is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Jesus was born to common parents. They weren't part of the social or political or religious elite. Jesus made himself weak and vulnerable. He submitted him, subjected himself to poverty and pain. In other words, he made himself like us. He came in all humility and dwelt among us. He sought to know us in our every weakness. So he can sympathize with us. This is one aspect of the incarnation that the gospels are trying to impress upon us. It is good to have a king who understands our pains and our needs. But look what else is said here about the type of ruler Jesus is. Verse 6. For from you, meaning Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is described as a shepherd. And it points us back to the Old Testament, especially to Ezekiel 34, where the shepherd is used as an image of the ruler of God's people. It was meant to imply guidance, pastoral care, a sense of compassion. So godly shepherding formed part of the role assigned to the Israelite kings. But Ezekiel 34 reveals that they had failed to carry out this most important task. The leaders of Israel were described in Ezekiel 34 as wicked shepherds who kill their own sheep to make themselves fat and warm. They're tyrants using their authority for personal gain while oppressing their subjects. But God declares through his prophet, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. It would be God himself who would rescue his people and care for them. It would be God who would lead his people to green pastures and beside still waters. And this is who Jesus is revealed to be. He is the good shepherd who out of his great love for his sheep lays down his own life for them who dies to save them what every other ruler failed to do jesus would do properly and perfectly 
While men like Herod were unworthy kings, Jesus is the true and perfect king, the one who rules in truth and in love and in justice and in peace. And this means that Jesus isn't a ruler who is in it simply for his own gain. Yes, Jesus indeed gets all the glory, but he has ordained that his glory is tied to our good. He has inextricably bound up the honor of his name with the good of the citizens of his kingdom. So he rules with our good in heart and mind. He rules in a way to care for us, to provide for us, to protect us, to guide us, to bring us safely home to himself. There's no other shepherd who would lay down his life for his flock, only Jesus. And this means that we are safe in his loving care. We are safe. He is both powerful and gentle. So we can go wandering away from our good shepherd looking for our own greener pastures, but the outside world is filled with devils and dangers which threaten to kill and destroy. Our only safety is found being under Jesus' care in the shelter of his fold. But we're not only safe and cared for when we submit to his rule. It's more than that. So third, submitting your life to Jesus is the only way to find true joy. Submitting your life to Jesus is the only way to find true joy. This is what we are often after, isn't it? Joy. We seek to fulfill our desires because we think in them we will find joy in the pleasures they promise to produce. Or we strive endlessly to be good people because we feel like in good works we will discover a sense of joy through accomplishment or self-sacrifice. Or we seek some form of utopia because we have imagined that the greatest good will produce joy. But the nativity story opens our eyes to the truth. There is joy surrounding the birth of Jesus because it is in him that we find our joy. We saw it in Luke through the angel who came proclaiming good news of great joy. A savior had been born. And here in Matthew's gospel, after following the star to Jerusalem and inquiring about what the scriptures say concerning the birth of the Messiah, the wise men found that the star rose again for them to follow. In verses 9 and 10 state, And behold, The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when the star arose because it directed them to the one whom they sought. There isn't just joy in Jesus as Savior. There is joy in Jesus as King. So while Herod in his sin sought to kill Jesus, the Magi sought Jesus out to bow before him as their King and to present to him the gifts that they had brought. Herod was driven by selfish and sinful desire and found nothing but frustration. The Magi were driven by a godly longing to submit themselves to Jesus and to worship him, and they found joy. We would be wise to take note. It's in surrendering our lives to Jesus. 
submitting to his lordship, living as citizens of his kingdom that we find our joy. Our joy is right there in the perfect will of God. But we are prone to resist bowing before him as Lord because it seems counterintuitive that submission would bring joy. Submission doesn't carry a very positive connotation. It seems to us to be at best demeaning and at worst enslaving. We don't want to yield our will to anyone or anything. We want joy to come from what we want to do. We think it comes from doing what we want when we want. Joy comes from self-expression, being who we want to be. And this is how we become enslaved to the powers of darkness. Because our desires are corrupted by sin. Submission to Jesus is what produces joy because in submitting ourselves to Jesus, we are freed from the powers of darkness to live in obedience to God's perfect will. So if we want to resolve to do something in this new year, resolve to invite the Holy Spirit to bring every aspect of your life under submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Fourth and finally, you should submit your life to Jesus because ultimately there is no escaping his Lordship. You should submit your life to Jesus because ultimately there is no escaping his lordship. He is sovereign over all things. We see this in both Luke and Matthew's gospels. We see rulers, Caesar, Augustus, and Herod, those who are the most powerful on this earth, who appear to be in control, who are making decrees and giving orders. It is they who seem to be directing history in these narratives, but they are not in control at all, are they? As the narrative unfolds, God is shown to be sovereignly working to fulfill his own plans, working over and above and even through these men and their imaginary self-importance and their wicked scheming. And scripture affirms that God is working out his purposes in each of our lives, ruling over every aspect of his creation at every moment. Not a hair will fall from our heads outside of God's will. The first chapter of Colossians states, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's not one aspect of creation that is not under his control. If there was, all creation would implode. So you can fight against his rule. You can pretend to be in control of your life. You can refuse to bow before him, but all of your labors will be in vain. The alternative is that you accept his sovereign care over your life. And when you do, it frees you to not be seeking to force your own way all the time and to strive endlessly to be the master of your own fate. You can receive what comes your way in faith, knowing that God is working all things for your good and for his glory. As the 
Heidelberg Catechism stresses, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. Living in this way is incredibly liberating. So submitting to his rule means that we are not brought to absolute despair by a bad president or a global pandemic or a downturn in the stock market or an unexpected death of a loved one or the loss of a job, an illness or injury or anything else. We can be confident that God is still on his throne. And please note that what I'm describing is not some form of fatalism. We don't live as though nothing we do matters or as though we can make foolish decisions with no consequences. Rather, submitting to his rule means being joyful in his service regardless of the circumstance. For we know that in all things he is caring for us and he has invited us to be used by him for his divine purposes. It is an honor and a privilege to represent the king of the universe in this way. And it should cause us to devote ourselves all the more to the disciplines of the Christian life, studying and meditating on God's word, prayer, worship, evangelism, service, stewardship of our resources. For we know what the ultimate end is. The day is coming when all will bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord. And God intends to use us as his people to bring from all nations people who will come and worship just as the Magi did. I pray then that our lives joyfully submitted to Jesus Christ would shine his light in this new year in a way that draws all people to himself. And to God be the glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kind and loving care over our lives. Help us to place our trust in you, to submit ourselves to your sovereign will. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand now and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed from Philippians chapter 2. Christian, whom do you believe? We believe. 